and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 13th, John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. Welcome back, everyone. It's the 13th of October, and this is a day that I have been waiting for in the schedule. I've been really impatient to get to it. Why exactly? Well, because we're going to be going over three movies by one of my personal favorite directors, just period, is John Carpenter. Now, most people might know him best as the director of the original Halloween, which we will be getting to near the end of the month, as well as a few other uh, movies such as Big Trouble in Little China, uh, They Live, and, you know, obviously the uh, dystopic sci-fi classic Escape from New York. But since this is... But since we're in October, the lead-up to Halloween, a.k.a. the objectively best time of year, I figured I'd go over, at least as far as I've noticed amongst casual audiences, one of the lesser-known parts of his filmography, the so-called Apocalypse Trilogy, which you know isn't really a trilogy, but it's sort of called that just because they're a trio of movies about basically the world coming to an end. You got probably his most famous one, uh, The Thing, which, you know, was one of the most classic examples of a cult film. Because when this thing came out, like, not only did it do poorly at the box office, critics fucking hated it. And we'll get a little bit into why that was, but, you know, all in due time. We've got Prince of Darkness which came out a few years after that. And then finally, In the Mouth of Madness, where it was weird for me seeing that the first time because when I was a kid, I only knew Sam Neill as the guy from Jurassic Park. But (laughs) (coughs) But we're going to go through and talk about the themes themselves. We're going to start with The Thing, which is a bit of a... Interesting one to talk about for me because I like, you know, good old old style sci-fi a lot. And this is like the fifth or sixth adaptation of Who Goes There, which is a adaptation of the novella by John W. Campbell Jr. Uh, he was an old sci-fi author. He, I think he was involved with an old sci-fi magazine. Uh, called Amazing Tales or something like that. This was, like, way back before, you know, sci-fi was getting taken even slightly seriously as a literary genre. But, and it's definitely the most faithful adaptation of the novella because, like, there was the, you know, thing from another world in the 50s. Um, But that was, like, some weird sort of, like, plant monster that was attacking them. This is pretty... This is a lot more accurate to the story where it's a sort of shape-shifting, sort of nebulous-formed monster that's attacking the crew. And, you know, basic premise, if you hadn't seen it, is that there's a research station in Antarctica. You've got... Actually, despite what a lot of critics at the time said, actually a pretty decently well-rounded number of characters. Um, It was fairly easy to keep track of them all, despite the fact that, you know, 
they're pretty much it's pretty much an entirely male cast. The only like the only women on in the movie was like Adrian Barbo's voice at one point during the beginning. But yeah, despite the fact that all but like two of them were, you know, despite the fact the entire cast was like white and all of them the entire cast was like male, sorry, and all but two of them were white, it was actually pretty easy to keep track of who was who. Like even aside from Kurt Russell and Keith David. Uh, funnily enough, we've got an acting role from uh, Wilford Brimley, which I didn't even know he was an actor for a while. I, <laughs> When I was younger and I was over at my grandmother's house after school, I always just knew him as like the guy from like the diabetes uh, service commercials. <laughs> but they're on a research base in Antarctica, and one day a rather bizarre incident happens where <clears throat> there's a helicopter from the nearby Norwegian research base. And they're and they come flying in and they're chasing this like dog for some reason, and there's a guy on the helicopter that's trying to like shoot the dog. And they don't know why. So they land and they try to calm the guy down, but he's so freaked out that he just starts shooting at them. They start shooting back, and it just blows up the helicopter. So they take the dog in, and we find out soon that the dog is, in fact, the host of the creature. That, you know, that's the thing. But... And, you know, obviously the whole thing is that... The whole thing. The whole issue with the creature from the thing is that it's shape-shifting, and it can basically imitate any person, and it can imitate their voice as well. But the... What was I going to say? Oh, yeah, so it goes through, and it's just trying to, like, get stuff to feed, and... Essentially, the whole movie's point is just the paranoia that it causes by, you know, not knowing if the guy next to you is who he is or if he's actually just the monster in disguise. But... So so the whole movie is just them, like, trying to kill the monster, trying not to kill each other. Uh, Wilford Brimley's character freaks out at one point and destroys the comms stories a little like communications array that they had and that's a good example of what is like the depth of this movie that I think a lot of like critics missed when this movie came out because you know okay side tangent I normally don't get upset when a movie I like gets bad reviews it is what it is but the thing the way this one got treated when it came out is just the only time where reading the reviews it just actually made me angry. Because it's like, were you guys even watching the same goddamn movie? No, There's no characters? Yeah, there are. You're just not paying attention. It's just... Fest, it's bleak, it's nihilistic. Yeah, it's a fucking horror movie. You're not... You don't go to a horror movie expecting to feel good. That's not what horror is. But, you know, the effects were 
So going to get off that before I give myself an aneurysm. The uh, you know, credits to uh, Mr. Botten, uh, Rob Botten, who was the effects artist on it, and who had previously worked with. John Carpenter on his movie The Fog. And it's definitely it's definitely something that works a lot. It's definitely a whole premise that works pretty well because it's not just that you're paranoid. It's not just that you don't feel like you can trust the people around you. They're in the middle of Antarctica and they're going into winter. So it's not like they can just pack up and leave. And the reason Wilford Brimley's character destroys the communications array is, well, that depends how you look at it. Maybe he's doing it to keep the thing contained. Maybe he's doing it because he is the thing and he doesn't want them escaping or calling for backup. I don't know. It's really ambiguous. But, you know, you've got, you know, Kurt Russell as their helicopter pilot... Um, other than, I'm going to be honest, other than Brimley and Keith David, I don't really know any of these other guys off the top of my head, but I don't know. It's just, it's a good example of what I mean when I tell people that you can have a great movie that's set just entirely in one location and still have it work. And part of it's also just the effects, you know, it's, it's 80s, it's practical effects, which really works. Like I'm not. I'm not anti-CG. CG has its uses. Cut to the Yoda puppet, for example. But <laughs> the but they did everything they could to like shoot around it. Like you know, they give you just enough light to kind of see the creature, and then your brain just fills in the rest. Uh, it really helps to like hide the flaws with the props, so it doesn't take you out of it, and it it does actually make you a little bit more unsettled. And there's a scene where they're sort of testing, like, the crew member's blood. Because the interesting aspect about the thing is that every single cell in that thing is kind of its own organism. So what they did was that they drew blood from a whole bunch of the crew members. They took a flamethrower and sort of used, like, the pilot light on it to heat up a piece of, like, copper wire or something like that. And Russell, Kurt Russell's character, McCready, he just sticks it into the blood to see if it reacts in any way other than just boiling. And there, I'm, I'm not going to say who it was, but there was, a, there was a crew member who was infected at that point. But the thing that makes that scene great is that all the sound and all the non-diegetic noise drops out. It's really stark. It's really quiet. And I've seen the movie like a half dozen times. And like the act, the jump scare in that is not only actually good, it still kind of gets me at points. Because it goes on just a little bit longer than you'd expect that scene to. So it kind of like makes you think, oh, well, maybe they're not going to do the jump scare. And then the jump scare happens. So it's like it always kind of catches you off guard. And like I'm still... 
I still kind of forget which one it is, so I don't end up expecting it. it. It's really hard to explain, but... Yeah, overall, it's just a really good, satisfying horror movie. So, that comes to the question. Why did it fail so hard at the box office? Well, you know, might have just been the bad reviews to some degree, but... And, you know, the traditional answer because Carpenter himself kind of hinted at this. The thing does have a very depressing and nihilistic tone to it, as you would expect from a horror movie. And it was competing against, like, E.T., because it came out in 1982, the same year. I don't really think there's much to that idea, because, let's be honest, E.T. is a PG-rated family movie, and it was marketed as such. The thing was a... Was a R-rated horror movie. These aren't exactly demographics that overlap that easily. You know, going off that a little bit, the thing was and is an R-rated movie, so it's not like children could have gone to the theater to see it unless they had a come, unless they had an adult accompanying them. And this was the '80s. By this point, everyone was getting kind of touchy about violence in the media a little bit. But Carpenter has also hinted at the idea that the tone might have been just the fact that America was kind of going through a recession at that point. So, you know, no one was really in the mood for it. But, you know, it was kind of a crowded summer, basically. I mean, just to give a good example, um, even though it also kind of got like polarized reviews and didn't perform well. It came out the same year as Blade Runner, came out the same year as Tron, Conan the Barbarian, Poltergeist, uh, both Star Trek II and Mad Max II. Uh, Universal Studios kind of bears some of the blame for, you know, very bad marketing. Like, there wasn't a lot of it. And on top of that... Let's be honest, it's just weird kind of having, most of the time, it's just a little weird having, like, a horror movie that feels like that was pretty much almost literally shot in a fridge and marketing it for a summer release. Like, at the very least, like, have it be around Halloween time. But, I don't know. Whatever it was, it really had an immediate impact on Carpenter. Due to the poor performance of it, he actually lost the opportunity to direct the movie Firestarter. And, well, Universal had a multi-film contract with him, but the studio opted to just buy him out instead. And he wouldn't really openly talk about the things poor performance for a few years until he was interviewed by the um I couldn't figure out if this was like a magazine or a website or something like that oh wait not a website sorry I'm I'm assuming it's a magazine because this was the 80s but called Starlog but you know thankfully it did get a pretty wide audience and some new appreciation on home video.
And I do just want to get this out of the way at the ending, so come back in like come back in like a minute and a half and you can rejoin us if you don't want spoilers. So the end of the movie uh has McCready and has McCready and Child sitting around the a uh, little bit of a fire as the base has kind of been destroyed in the efforts to uh, kill the thing. The thing is they've been separated from each other so long that they don't trust each other. And, you know, this has been the... You know, f- the kind of infamous ending scene that they just sit around not really knowing to trust each other. And they just share a bottle of scotch whiskey and then the movie ends. And it's been an endless debate by fans as to which one of them is the thing. And I say this, neither one is, and it's pointless to theorize because that's not the point of that scene. The point is that they still don't trust each other. That's the only point to it. Plus, if you turn up the brightness on your screen when you watch it, you can see Child still has his earring. And as much as I don't like the 2011 prequel slash remake, because it's literally just the same movie, just with elements to make it a prequel, which I hope you don't watch that before you watch the original, because if you do, it ruins the entire first half of the thing. But the one good thing that came out of that is that we explicitly established the thing can't mimic... Uh, inorganic material. So it can take over someone's body and assimilate them and then steal their clothes, but it can't imitate, like, fillings, for example. The fact that Child still has his earring means that if he was the thing, then the creature was at least smart enough to pick up the earring, or it's not him. So either way. But, you know... I just wanted to give my two cents on that, but yeah, uh, this, actually this whole trilogy has pretty good releases from uh, Shout Factory with their Scream Factory sub-label. They have pretty decent Blu-ray copies. Um, I don't know where to go if you want 4K if they do that yet, but, you know, just wanted to say all three of these do have that physical media. I'm pretty sure at least the thing is on Peacock, you know, the NBC streaming service if you want to check it out. Um, if you still, for some reason, have regular cable TV, (laughs) I think it's playing on a few channels every now and again. Obviously, it's edited for TV, though, but, you know, if you somehow manage to go this, just to go without seeing it, then definitely give this one a shot. It's, I, I would call it essential viewing for not just horror fans, but any sort of Carpenter fan in particular. Alright, next up, five years later, post The Thing, we have Prince of Darkness, which, I'm going to be perfectly honest, is still a great movie, but it is my least favorite of the Apocalypse trilogy, just because, I mean, I appreciate the really atmospheric tone, I appreciate the sort of nebulous concept of, like, cosmic horror that it has, just because it's almost literally sealed evil in a can. 
but it's definitely one that I have to tell people if you want one that has like a concrete uh, definite ending, this is not this should be kind of low on your priority list. But again, if you're a horror fan in general, and especially if you're a Carpenter fan, this is what I'd consider essential viewing. It's definitely got... Well, it's definitely got interesting ideas. There's this weird mix of, like... Um, you know, fear... Science, like there's a lot of talk of atomic theory, physics. But it's also kind of mixed with this idea of like some sort of ultimate evil figure. It's it's hard to really explain without spoiling anything, but basically there's Professor Byrak, who is at the Neil University. Um in in Los Angeles, which is where the where the movie also was filmed, and there's an unnamed Catholic priest uh, played by Donald Pleasance, who enlists the help of Byrak and some of his students to join him in trying to investigate this sort of like canister that has this swirling green liquid inside of it. Um, and you've got a lot of great characterization here. You've got Brian and Catherine, who are this couple. You've got Walter, who's kind of a smartass. You've got Kelly and Susan, who are respectively kind of like laid back and very high strung. And a lot of the people here are uh, like regulars, honestly. You've got Donald Pleasance, who is in both you know, Halloween, and was also in Escape from New York as the president. You've got... You've got Dennis Dunn and Victor Wong, who both worked with Carpenter previously on Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and uh, Peter Jason, this was his first movie with Carpenter. He would later be in... Uh, He'd have a small role in In the Mouth of Madness, too, which was the last of the Apocalypse trilogy, and I think he was in, like, four other Carpenter movies after this one. But what happens is that after they make a certain amount of progress in it, everyone starts getting these recurring nightmares, and some of the fluid actually escapes the, sil the canister, and basically uh, makes people possessed, for lack of a better word, and to top it all off, they're kind of surrounded by this gang of, like, brainwashed homeless people uh, being led by <laughs> being led by one who's played by Alice Cooper, of all people. And, you know, you can analyze it in a bunch of different ways. Um... You know, the fact that the sort of demonic possession and it is kind of treated like a communicable disease. A lot of commentators have have kind of suggested that it's sort of a parable for the AIDS epidemic, which was, you know, kind of at its peak at the time, although, you know, it's pretty much any 80s movie that has disease or something like it as 
like a central plot point. You know, people always draw like the AIDS comparison, but you know, there there might be something to it. Uh, Carpenter was always kind of ahead of the curve on a lot of you know political and social commentary in his movies, but. You know, there's a lot of, it accomplishes a lot of what cosmic horror should do, which is, even if you have great, really well-developed characters, which this movie does, it should make them and you, the audience member, by extension, feel kind of small and hopeless. Because that's kind of the point of cosmic horror. It's not just that the monster is powerful, it's powerful on a scale that you can't really fight and that your only hope is that it can be sealed away or if for a little bit or at least, you know, avoided. Like the idea that you're so insignificant that it doesn't pay you any attention. Again, it's kind of open-ended ending. Like it cuts in the middle of an action sequence. Not really an action sequence, but in the middle of like someone just doing something. I won't say what. But, you know, it has the whole mix of, like, old and new. This whole instance gets analyzed through a scientific lens. But the whole instance is that after a priest at the monastery dies, um, you know, the priest played by Pleasance, he finds a hidden basement of the monastery and inside is the canister and these letters from is involving a old priesthood called the Brotherhood of Sleep, which were it, it leads to a lot of like weird ancient alien shit, basically. <laughs> but it does it in a way that doesn't feel like contrived, is the best way I can put it. So again, I don't know where this would be available for streaming service. But if you want the But if you want a physical release, like I said, uh, Shout Factory has a good Blu-ray for this one. I actually have Blu-rays for all three of these movies from them. As a fun little side note, Carpenter wrote the screenplay, but he did it under the uh, alias of Martin Quartermass. And that and the name of the institution, Neil University, is a reference to... Uh, a British film and television writer, Nigel Neal. His best-known character is Bernard Quartermass, which, you know, it definitely f shares a lot of elements associated with Neal, with the whole using science to investigate the The paranormal, confrontation with some kind of like ancient malevolent creature, messages from the future, stuff like that. I mean, Neil himself was apparently not happy with that because he was worried viewers might believe he had something to do with the film, but I couldn't find any real reference to that. I just, that was just something I heard I couldn't verify, unfortunately. Uh, one of the cool things I liked was that the recurring dream I mentioned, it shows this sort of shadowy figure who's kind of like backlit emerging from the church doorway. And Carpenter himself narrated it, but the way he did it 
to give it a sort of peculiar dislocated feeling is that he shot the action of it with a video camera and then re-photographed it on a television set. So that's why it has that sort of stretched, kind of washed-out image. It almost kind of looks like, you know, 80s news footage with the way it is. So it really stands out compared to the rest of the movie, which is a good thing for a dream sequence. And finally, we have In the Mouth of Madness, which my second favorite of the trilogy, aside from The Thing, and probably one of my favorite endings of just any movie ever. But I'm not going to talk about that here. Go fucking watch it. You don't. I am no longer asking, okay? I am telling you at this point. <laughs> so, the basic, the basic impetus here is that we have uh, Sam Neill, who is playing Mr. John Trent. He is a private investigator who usually works for uh, insurance companies investigating fraud claims. And there's this great sort of like, uh, sort of like film noirish moment at the beginning where he's interviewing um, character played by Peter Jason, and I've kind of joked it's the scene where we have uh, three guys involved and all of the actors have two first names because it's you know Sam Neill, Peter Jason, Bernie Casey, but. You know, he's sitting there and he's just sort of talking to him and he's kind of like, you know, needling him a little bit before, you know, just dropping the hammer on him. It's like, dude, I know that you set fire to your own merchandise, okay? You're not getting the money. But essentially, he has uh, lunch with a colleague of his. And... This colleague is the owner of an insurance company himself, and he asks him to go talk to Arcane Publishing, which is a New York-based publishing house. Uh, and during the conversation, it it's funny because you just see in the background this guy, this like freaky mutant-looking guy, just shamble out of like a video store, and he's just dragging like an axe behind him in this long shot. You just see him walking across the street while the two of them are just having lunch in their booth. And then there's just the wind-up, and through the magic of great editing and, you know, insert shots, you know, that's characteristic of John Carpenter, he makes the impact seem a lot more frightening than it actually is. Well, I shouldn't say more than it actually is. It would be kind of freaky if some, like, you know, disheveled-looking guy just attacked you with an axe, but... You know, it kind of captures the like chaotic feel of the place a lot more than if it were just done straight with like a wide angle. And then he just asks, Do you read Sutter Kane? John Trent's like, Yeah, John's just like, What the fuck? And you get this like great close up of the guy's eyes, and it's sort of like split, uh, split irises. Like almost like amphibian eyes, basically, before the guy gets shot by the cops. So he goes to Arcane and meets the director Harglow. It's it's a weird thing with this movie. There's a lot of like people who are just have like very small roles because the whole thing is like being told in a flashback. 
Um, I probably should have said this earlier, sorry. But it's definitely one of the best Lovecraft movies ever made, even though it's not based on any specific Lovecraft story. It's just the general tone of the whole thing. And the opening of the movie actually has Trent being dragged into a mental hospital in a straitjacket because everyone thinks he's a lunatic. So the majority of the film is actually just him telling it to a to a Mr. Dr. Wren. It's played by David Warner. Again, it's like him and John Glover are actually <laughs> doctors at this mental asylum. It's again, it it's weird how many like people from other movies I noticed that just showed up for like one scene roles, basically. And so he's recounting this story, and eventually he gets to Arcane Publishing, he meets Harglow, played by Charlton Heston, of all people. And he asks him to investigate the disappearance of, you know, the novelist that the guy with the axe mentioned, uh, Sutter Kane, who... It's sort of like this weird mix of like a Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft figure. And he sends off... And part of the reason is because they want to find uh, Kane and they want to find his manuscript for his last novel, which is actually called In the Mouth of Madness. Because the whole, you know, fucking with the lines between reality and fiction is kind of a theme in this movie. And they kind of, it's kind of a weird thing because you kind of get like hints of what the rest of the story is going to be that Kane's stories have actually caused like memory loss and paranoia and is, you know, quote unquote, less stable readers. But Trent is kind of like the, you know, John Carpenter surrogate. He's really like skeptical and kind of cynical. And he's convinced the whole thing is a publicity stunt. And he notices these, like, red lines on the covers of Kane's books, which, when aligned properly, they, they actually form the outline of a map of New Hampshire. And they mark a location alluded to be Hobbs End, which is the fictional setting for a lot of Kane's works. So they set out, and there's a whole bunch of, like, weird phenomena. There's, like, this kind of, like, weird time loop thing where there's this kid on a bike every time they... Because they keep passing by him, and he visibly ages. And then, you know, Hobbs End's not supposed to be a real place. Turns out it is a real place. And, like, the freaky thing with Linda Stiles, who's one of the publicists that goes... No, wait, not a publicist, an editor that goes with him, is that she's freaked out. Because she's like, no, you don't really understand. The disappearance was meant to be a publicity stunt. Harglow sent me with you to make it look good. But the thing is, we weren't supposed to find anything. But we did. And yeah, that's kind of the whole... That's definitely should have been a red flag for Trent, I think, is that they're pretty much admitting that you were partially right. But the thing is, we were not supposed to find this. This was supposed to be a fictional town. So from there on, they investigate... And I will say that once they get to the actual town, it gets a little repetitive. Uh, not like the time loop thing, it's just, there's not much to do. But it doesn't last, 
That's like one of the shortest sequences in the uh, movie itself, aside from like the beginning and end. So it doesn't really drag on longer than it needs to. And yeah, we get Sutter Kane himself. He's played wonderfully by uh, Jürgen Prochnow, who's this you know famous like German actor. Uh, he was the sub commander in Das Boot. He was like the bank owner in the Da Vinci Code. If anyone's seen that. Um, if anyone's seen that movie Air Force One, he was, uh, Ivan Radek, who was the, like, dictator that the terrorists were actually loyalists of. So, there's that. You've got, and yeah, just going through some of the other people that show up is, uh, Mrs. Pickman. Like, the little, uh, hotel owner. Uh, it's played by Francis Bay. A lot of people these days probably know her best as, like, Happy Gilmore's, like, grandma, but she showed up in a lot of, like, David Lynch stuff. You got Wilhelm von Holmberg, who's a sort of, like, German boxer. If you don't recognize the name, he was, uh, you might recognize him as Vigo from Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> Just showing up as, like, this, you know, farmer in the middle of a random New Hampshire town that nonetheless has, like, the thickest German accent I have ever heard. And we also get a appearance by a very, very young Hayden Christensen. Like, I think this was, like, 14 years old. I think it was, like, his first or second ever role. But, yeah, I'm not going to go any further because otherwise I'd be spoiling it. But, you know, definitely, definitely give In the Mouth of Madness a watch, especially because... You know, the music is pretty standard Carpenter fare. It's a lot of, like, tonal stuff, a lot of atmospheric... Um, a lot of atmospheric soundscaping. Um, pretty much everyone involved was giving a great performance, especially, you know, Sam Neill. He's just... He's equal part... He has to play the roles of both cynical and composed and also completely psychotic, and he plays both of them really well. As far as the music goes, it's pretty standard Carpenter stuff, except for the opening and end credit music. It's He, along with uh, Dave Davies from The Kinks, basically made like a bootleg... <laughs> um, a bootleg Metallica song. I think he wanted to get Enter Sandman, but he couldn't get the rights for it. So for the opening and end credits movie, he just... It's the movie, he just made his own version of it that's just like slightly altered. <laughs> Which... I, I kind of admire that, honestly. It's really... Especially given the fact that it's a... Especially given the fact that it's a Metallica song. But, yeah. So that's the Apocalypse Trilogy, and without giving away too much, In the Mouth of Madness is the logical conclusion of that, because this is... If you want to, if you want to say the stakes kind of escalate here, but paradoxically, there's more follow through here, because you know the thing, the consequence of apocalypse meant the end of all life on Earth. Prince of Darkness was like the risk of the Earth itself going, and this is just the universe in reality, kind of falling apart. And this is the only one where we actually like see, at least a sliver of that happening. But yeah, if you want a weird trivia movie that has at least a 
plot line that's fairly easy to follow, give this a watch. So that's going to be it for today. I'll be back tomorrow talking about Herschel Gordon-Lewis, a.k.a. one of the, the inspirations for you know the director John Waters, the godfather of the splatter film, or the godfather of gore, if you'd prefer. So I'm going to be signing off. Take care. Have a great night. Bye.